0: Everyone, and welcome to another episode of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that is not human and it's got an axe. I, of course, am your host, Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and I'm here once again to talk about the movies I watched this week in my October 31 for 31 marathon, where I watch one horror movie a day for the entire month of October. Now, this week, I had a nice romp through some foreign films, a uh, stop-motion work of genius, some body horror, and a religious psychological chiller that made me go off on the concept of loneliness and isolation in horror movies. Uh, really got me going, got my 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 whistle wet. Uh, plus, as is my theme this year, I snuck in some folk horror from Yugoslavia to kick it off. But, if you are new to Palooza, well then start off by going back and listening to episode one of this season, which I think is season five now, or I think we're on season five, but then come back here and listen to this episode. And I'll remind you either way to follow me on Twitter at skinless wonder and Instagram as, as sir Ian dangerous. And of course to check out the Tiki creeps on tiki and four one four beg on Instagram. They did my music and my sound design for the show respectively. So please Go give them some love as well. And of course, you know the deal. Like, share, subscribe, review, all that good social media stuff. It helps me out immensely. So please don't forget to do that. Even though I know we all get inundated with that stuff every time we consume some media. Trust me, it actually is necessary. And there is a reason why everyone is asking you to do it. Please please do it as it does help content creators out so much. But on ...with the show. As you probably know by this point, I am following my yearly rules to pick my horror movies to watch. So, as a refresher, those rules are. I, when picking movies to watch this year, cannot pick any film I've watched in the last five years. I have to have at least three movies in another language besides English, so three foreign language films, at least two films... From every decade, I've got to watch two films from the 1940s and before, uh, two from the 1950s, two from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, teens, and now 20s, good Lord. Uh, It used to be just one per decade. That was too easy, so now I'm making myself stretch a little bit and check out more movies from other time periods. Uh, There need to be uh, no movies from the same franchise, Unless I just count them as one. So if I watch all 10 Hellraiser films, or 11 now, it still only counts as one movie. They have to be, this seems, this seems logical, but you'd be surprised. They need to be horror movies. And I need to be able to defend them as horror movies. I actually have to do that twice in this episode today. I'm going to have to defend two of the movies I watched as horror movies. So that's going to be fun. Uh, And then finally, of course, I have a bonus rule every year that I have to watch a certain number of a certain type of film. Last year, it was uh, female-directed horror films, women creators with horror films. This year, it is folk horror. Folk horror is my theme for the year. I have to watch at least one folk horror film from each of the decades that I'm covering. So, nine folk horror films in total. Oh. Yeah. So so far this year, I have watched. Uh, the first movie I watched this year was a folk horror film. It was Witchfinder General, starring Vincent Price from 1968. The second movie I watched was Eyes of Fire, another folk horror film from 1983. Uh, number three was Terrified or Aterrados. Uh, was an awesome uh, that was a great film from 2017. Number 4 was God Told Me To, Larry Cohen from 1976. Number 5 was Barbarian, still in theaters right now. You can go check that out. The sixth movie I watched was The Undying Monster, uh, a more rare film from back in 1942. And the seventh film I watched this year, currently playing on Hulu, and I had a lot I had a lot to say about it last week, is of course The New Hellraiser, One of my favorite franchises. Even though it's a franchise that more often than not has very disappointing movies, I felt like this one was not disappointing. In fact, it might have been my favorite Hellraiser since the very first one. Big words, I know. Go back, check out that review if you want to hear my full spiel on that Hellraiser. I thought it was awesome. So, so far, I've gotten to maybe three of the nine folk horror films that i need i'm I'm still debating if undying monster counts as a folk horror film it's it's right on the edge uh so far i've gotten one of my required three foreign language films and i've got at least one film of the two i need in six of the nine decades i need look uh, okay it sounds like a lot of math but just trust me i've got a long way to go it only gets really hairy in the last week so Fingers crossed that I'm being a good boy and I don't make myself crunch in the last few days. But enough about that. Let's talk about what I watched this week. Again, hit me up, Twitter, Instagram. Let me know uh, how I'm doing. If you think my opinions are complete lunacy. If I'm way off base, let me know if you think I'm right on. Or if I find a film that I introduce you to that you've never heard of and you're so happy that you've seen it. Or if you're like, oh, God, why did you make me watch that piece of crap? Just let me know. Go find me. Hit me up. Skinless Wonder on Twitter. Sir Ian Dangerous on Instagram. And, of course, here we go on with the show. Our very first movie from this week. The eighth movie I've watched this year for this marathon. Leptirica from 1973 over on Shudder, of course. The best streaming service there is for horror movies. Um, So... British folk horror is the setting and style most often associated with the genre of, for the subgenre I guess of folk horror, uh, uh, pagans, witches, Satanism, druids, standing stones, uh, the burial mounds of England, and the friction between the mannered, cultured classes of the elite and the more base, carnal existence of the peasantry. What you want, governor? They, those tend to be the settings we think of most when we discuss these films. I know I just did Cockney. I probably should have done, like, Manchester or whatever. Well, anyway, uh, 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 Leeds. But anyway, there's a, um, there's a huge expanse of culture and history outside of England. Believe it or not, The Sun does indeed set on the British Empire. And uh, as a result, there are a wealth of amazing films that deal with the tropes and themes of folk outside of the Commonwealth. So I hope to find a few of them. And one such movie, not too far removed from the Western world, is Leptirica, a Yugoslavian folktale about a boy, a girl, a village, a vampire, and a butterfly. Now, what drew me to this film, among other things, was the fact that it deals with a vampire who, despite what you may have heard, is actually more, far more famous in this part of the world than Count Dracula, even though... Old Drac came from right up the street in Romania, according to the story. Uh, Sava Savanovic was this vampire, and he actually appeared in 90 Years Later, a story by Serbian author Milovan, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Gilesic, written about a decade or so before Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, Savanovic was said to haunt an old water mill where he would attack and drain the blood of any miller who stayed the night. And Leptirica starts with this premise, using an actual ancient mill that still stands today, and which was rumored to be Savinovich's actual haunt. So naturally, afterwards we afterwards we find the mill requiring a new proprietor after the opening of this film. And so we are introduced to lovesick young Srahinia, who gets rebuffed by the grumpy, bluto looking uncle of his love, Radoika, when he asks for her hand in marriage. Now maybe taking over the mill will change her uncle's mind, or perhaps it will make the villagers who can't really stand old Uncle Bluto like Strahinja better. And then they'll take matters into their own hands. Ooh, maybe. The movie plays out like an old fairy tale because that's what it basically is. It was a TV movie made for Yugoslavian TV back before there were really horror movies made in this part of the world. And it's actually considered to be the very first Serbian horror film. It draws upon the culture of the region including the folk history and the local tales of the monsters which the common folk were afraid of at night. Now, of course, vampires have existed all over the world in some form or another, but the vampirism terror which arose in Europe during the 1800s created so many stories that held sway at the time and even through to today. A lot of the superstitions and conceptions that we have about Western vampires grew out of this. And even though some aspects have remained, like uh, stakes through the heart, the fear of sunlight. Uh, There are some that still remain sort of culturally unique. They're oddities to other places, but they're they're specific to the areas, to the specific areas. So Liptyrica has a few of these. And it's actually a fascinating look into another culture's iconography. There's even a scene out of old, old folklore books that I've read from Eastern Europe where a possessed woman rides a man like a horse. And this is often described as her mounting his shoulders and i i often wondered how that would work how do you how do you ride a man like that not like he's not on all fours. sometimes he is but in this you know it's often described he's he's running on two legs with her riding him uh in v for example communist russia's first ever horror film the witch rides the man by simply hopping on his shoulders then he starts running while she waves her arms around and cackles and then before he knows it he's running through the sky uh, and here, in Leptirica, she grabs his mouth like a bridle, just grabs it on the other side, and then ushers him on like a beast of burden. And it looks painful and uncomfortable, and it makes the legend seem more unsettling. And we've never really seen anything like that in Western movies. The idea of a vampire turning into a mist or a cloud of bats is common over here. But here... In this film, in Leptirica, when its coffin is found, it attempts to escape as a tiny butterfly or moth, as the men who have found it try desperately not to let it escape. And the scene in question is not played supernaturally, per se. There's no, like, weird, creepy music or anything. It's very Uh, matter-of-factly, and it actually makes it apparent how easily superstitions could occur. What if it were just a moth trapped in the coffin, and when they crack the coffin open, it flits out. But the villagers are certain of their beliefs. And ultimately, in this film at least, it proves them right. Which I think does indeed make this a folk horror film more than it makes it a timepiece of Serbian film. The film shows us how alone and bored many of these villagers are. Uh, Radojka, the love interest, spends all her day traipsing around the hills watching sheep graze. The old men who represent the villagers in the film, they all sit around and drink. And bicker, there's a lot of time to let imaginations run wild. And if the film didn't literally show us a vampire at a certain point, it could be a film about how bored peasants keep themselves occupied, keep their imaginations going. And in fact, even though this movie is a very breezy 63 minutes, it feels chock full of interesting moments and memorable scenes. The villagers themselves are are a hoot, by the way. They're often acting like... Um, Like the acting troupe in Midsummer Night's Dream, where they're all bumbling and fumbling over each other and being a a cavalcade of pratfalls and goofy one-liners. And a lot of this humor, it still hits today, actually. Even though the movie generally feels very extremely dated and and very, 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 very low budget, much of the movie in general works very well. Even the vampire's transformation scene, which has extremely cheap special effects, but I, I argue it still feels effective in context. At the, at the time when it was released, it was the Balkan version of the chestburster scene in Alien, and susceptible viewcher, viewers that were watching this on TV when it first aired were said to have even fainted when this transformation scene happened. It, it is pretty horrific. Uh, it, it could be, at least, you know, if you take it <laughs> as a, a, a piece of when it was made. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the feeling of immersion in another culture that, that felt adjacent but still different to my own. The comedy, the sinister horror of it, Uh, Leptirica is not a movie for everyone, what with its slower pace and lack of real thrills except the beginning and end, but I really enjoyed it and I found it fascinating. And it, It certainly is an exposure to the kind of horror that came from the folklore of Eastern Europe at a time when many of our modern pop culture icons were in a gestational period or didn't even exist. And it shows how folk horror can function as the basis for what ends up becoming mainstream horror down the road. And speaking of more mainstream-styled horror, up next on Night 9, I watched The Beach House, also on Shudder, a Shudder exclusive from 2019. Now, going into The Beach House, I was hoping for some good body horror as I would heard that this movie was an underseen gem that would probably skeeve me out a little bit and make my skin crawl. I I love me a good body horror film, whether it's Cronenberg's, well, everything, but particularly like The Fly, uh, Carpenter's The Thing, the reanimator movies, Slither, uh, Starry Eyes, Jacob's Ladder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I I was hoping to find another solid entry here. And The Beach House starts like many other horror films. A couple of college-age kids show up at an isolated cabin in an isolated coastline community out in isolated Massachusetts somewhere. Uh, They get to Boinking, and then they suddenly discover that there are other people in the house with them, but it's just a couple who are friends of the guy who owns the house, which is one of the kids' estranged, estranged fathers, and then they all bond, and then the fog rolls in at night. And the fog is this blue luminescent, sticky mist which they all think is pretty and fun because they've all had a bunch of edibles. But we know from the portentous music and all of the looming sinister shots of the ocean and the fact that this is a freaking horror film uh, also the fact that the movie opened up with footage of deep sea vents and particulate matter floating in the water that something, look, something that's out there is actually going to fuck them up. Now, that's not a hugely original premise for a movie, but first-time writer-director Jeffrey Brown mostly keeps a pretty steady hand on the proceedings, lending a feeling of inevitable doom and a consistent tone to the increasing realization that things are going to get very, very messy. And aside from some questionable plot holes and inconsistent shots that show things that, you know, weren't there in a previous shot, that we could maybe chalk up to beginner's bad luck or oversight or whatever. Beach House is actually a pretty strong film. It only has a couple of really great visceral body horror moments, sadly. But I think that this also might have been due to budget constraints and technical ability rather than desire. Uh, and and one high or or low point, if you're if you're squeamish, is a scene that I think must have been inspired by botfly removal. If you've ever seen that on. On YouTube, people taking out parasites from from their own skin or from the skin of an animal. Uh, as there's a character in this movie that tries to remove such a parasite from their foot with a kitchen knife and some cooking tongs. And as they start to pull, the stretchy worm-like thing just keeps coming and coming and coming out of their foot. Oh, Nasty. Now, there's only a few of these really gross-out moments, as I said, and I can't really blame them if their budget kept them from having more, but the long stretches of time between the really explicit moments, they do slow the film down. The, the first act, a good half hour of the movie, is a lot of talking and introduction, not all of which is really relevant. The characters aren't uninteresting, really, and the acting is decent to good, for the most part, with uh, Jake Weber. From Zack Snyder's *Dawn of the Dead*, lending a comforting, weighted presence to the proceedings. But there's a lot of monologuing about astrobiology and organic chemistry. Ironically, the two subjects the female lead in the film uh, actually play with a sort of taut sincerity by Liana Liber- Liber- Liberato. Liana Liberato it was very good. Uh, these are the two subjects she studied. What a coincidence! Th- it's a little on the nose, and hearing her pontificate about this while stoned. Is about as interesting as listening to anyone ponti- pontificate while stoned. It's a half-baked way to set up, uh, set us up for the second half of the movie, where the toxic algae, fungus, chemical, whatever it is, spreads up out of the ocean, and the shift from the first half setup to the second half action, it's a bit sharp. Um, it yeah, not for lack of trying. It's just the first does the first half. <sighs> It's a lot that does nothing. We never really go back to learning more about these characters as well. So like, it's like the filmmakers gave up on exposition and story building entirely and just arbitrarily decided at a certain point around about the scene where one character takes a long walk into the ocean until he disappears that we'd learn enough about these characters and we didn't need to see them change or evolve more beyond what we'd already learned. And from that point on, it becomes a stumbling chase movie. Though we already know that what they're running from is all around them, which makes it a bit of a slog. Like, where are you going to run to? It's everywhere. The film kind of runs out of ideas at this point. And instead of giving us a satisfying conclusion or even expanding on ideas that it created in the first half, we're listening to stone people pontificate. It just kind of peters out and ends kind of flatly. And I think that they were going for maybe a discussion point about not trying to fight one's personal destiny and exceeding to greater forces than yourself because you understand your abilities or lack thereof. But that seems like an undercooked theory, an undercooked premise, and it's certainly one that that isn't presented clearly enough to really be a saliently made point. So at the end of the day, The Beach House is a fine movie. It's nothing groundbreaking or earth-shattering but it's not bad by any stretch. It is watchable enough if, if slow in its first half. And it has some excellent moments, even if the ending is somewhat limp. And I sadly can't, I can't recommend it wholeheartedly. As I didn't, it didn't really blow my mind. But I think there's enough good here that it's hard to recommend against it, too. It's, it's especially effective if you've ever been to the beach and you still have that sweet, salty smell of the things rotting on the seashore in your nostrils, or if you've ever swam in the ocean and had some kelp get wrapped around your arm, uh, or if you've ever been stung by a jellyfish, or if you've ever had food poisoning from eating oysters. Those visceral feelings can definitely make the horror in this film seem more tangible. And afterwards, you might even find yourself thinking twice about taking that trip you had planned to the beach. So up next... I watched something that I was not prepared for. And that was Mad God from 2021. Last year came out on Shudder. They got it exclusively. Thank man, shudder has been Shutter's been huge this year. Every year I do this show, Shutter has just been getting more and more good stuff. So props and they're still cheap as hell. Props to them. As not a commercial for Shudder, although if they wanted to, you know, throw me a little bit of commercial money, I wouldn't say no, but I, they're kicking ass right now. And this movie is a great example why. Um, because I, I think that Phil Tippett's Mad God is the first movie I've watched this year uh, where I might have to debate someone about if it's a horror film or not. But I will say it is. And I will win. So one of my rules for this marathon, of course, is that all the films have to be horror movies. And as I said, Mad God is streaming on Shudder, the horror movie streaming service. But I don't think that that alone qualifies it as a horror movie unconditionally. Shudder also has some thrillers on there, and some of the documentaries are lighter than others. I mean, they're usually about horror subjects, but still, it's it's not 100%. So, you know, I'd I'd have to argue the film being a part of the horror genre on its own merits. Um... Mad God is, by and large, a stop-motion film, which to many people indicates a children's film, a la Nightmare Before Christmas, which is more of like a cute little fairy tale than a horror film, despite its trappings. Uh, To be a horror film, by definition, is to explore extremely dark themes and subjects, often in a shocking or transgressive way. Uh, It will often cause a psychological response in its audience that reflects fear, disgust, despair, anger, Uh, And that's, of course, being a child's film does not exclude you from that. I'm going to have to make an argument later on that a children's film can be a horror film. Uh, You can have children's horror films. Um, But if you're just looking at it by that metric, dark themes, subjects, transgressive, creates fear, disgust, despair, anger. By that metric, Mad God succeeds and exceeds on every front, and in fact is one of the most surreal and unsettling movies I've seen in a long time. So, for example, early in its runtime, a faceless humanoid who wears what looks like a World War One getup complete with gas mask descends further and further into the bowels of some sort of uber-dystopian hellish world holding a briefcase. And this uh, this humanoid passes... Scenes of disrepair and disorder. Mounds of statues piled on top of each other like a gigantic child's nursery that's been abandoned. These mo- He passes these monstrous creatures that consume other humanoids and dismember them as our protagonist sneaks by. He passes a room with a diseased monkey strapped to a table, a pair of caged monsters that squeal and try to fight each other, and a masturbating doll that looks out blankly and cups a porcelain breast as she is passed by. And then... Our hero, as it were, passes through a dimly lit room of fire and enters a blue-lit chamber where massive, faceless, or perhaps hooded entities sit strapped in giant electric chairs, eternally being executed as their bodies convulse and writhe with the massive amounts of current being shunted through their immense bodies. And we pass by all of them as they copiously shit out their intestines into holes on the floor, As the protagonist takes an elevator even further down, we discover all of this is being fed to a giant infected face, which lolls its one eye at the descending platform, which then goes deeper and shows us more of the process. The face is connected to membranous sacs, which also have rolling eyes, and these are connected to a factory system, which turns the shit mulch into humanoid figures, which then populate as slave labor an underground megalopolis of endless toil and misery where they are callously destroyed by the machinations of the industrial city even as they attempt to work. Now if this sounds bizarre and horrific, well, yeah, it is. And it describes maybe five minutes of the whole film's runtime, which is a cavalcade of imagery like this. There is no kindness in this world, and any time we think that there might be We are reminded that all of the denizens are selfish or too afraid to truly do good. There is nothing but suffering and pain and work and tumors and shit and blood. And if you're lucky, death to release you from it all. If it's even possible that you can die. It is as intense a painting of hell that a modern Bosch could paint and tip its massive amounts of creativity jump out of the screen over and over and over almost overwhelming you with the richness and depth of the settings and the art direction. It is like Dave McKean, Bosch, the brother's key, and by extension Adam Jones from Tool, whose videos were inspired by the keys, Franz Kafka, uh, Zdzislaw Beksinski, Fellini, Jodorowsky, and Rankin-Bass. It's like they all got together and got really, really high and then vomited this out. And I mean that in the most reverential sense. This movie blew my mind. Over and over and over again. And it's no surprise that Phil Tippett actually ended up in the psych ward for a week after completing it. Now if the name Phil Tippett rings a bell, it's because he's a legendary Oscar award winning special effects and makeup guru and stop motion genius whose work you may have seen in little known movies like mm, Star Wars, RoboCop, Jurassic Park, Willow. Uh, Starship Troopers, Dragon Slayer, he's responsible for pioneering a uh, puppetry stop-motion hybrid technique that's known as Go-Motion, which you can actually see on display, as, like the Tauntauns and Empire Strikes Back, uh, the Rancor monster in Return of the Jedi, uh, the two-headed dragon in Willow, uh, the incredible Vermithrax Dragon in Dragon Slayer, which is a movie he won an Oscar for, along with special effects god, Dennis Murin. So around the time that he was working as a dinosaur supervisor on the first Jurassic Park, he was working on the early stages of what would eventually become Mad God. He, however, at the time, despaired that the age of stop motion had ended, and so he gave up on the project until it was revitalized in the late aughts, early teens-ish by fan support, uh, a Kickstarter campaign, and a huge grip of eager supporters who came to the project and volunteered, to help him finish his magnum opus. And as a result, the project ultimately, heroically, was finished. But it still took such a toll on him, physically, emotionally, and mentally, and given the subject matter spiritually too, I'd imagine, that he ended up having to be committed for unipolar depression after finishing the 30-year project. Uh, However, every cent of expended energy and time is apparent on screen. Uh, for every second of this movie's runtime. To say that this movie is, from a technical standpoint, an unparalleled achievement of ultimate technical wizardry is to not give it enough credit. It is an unabashed masterpiece, a stunning and towering work of artistic and creative brilliance. And while this phrase gets tossed around all the time, it truly is like nothing you have ever seen before. Um, that's not to say it's an easy watch. As I started out by saying, it is inarguably a horror movie. It is horrific, full to the brim with hellish imagery and an utterly bleak and nihilistic tone. And it parallels in some ways Dante's Inferno as the assassin, that gas mask wearing traveler I described earlier, descends further and further into the nether depths. Sure enough, down nine levels. But narratively, that's about as clear as it gets. As much of the film is more about tone and less really about a coherent story. There there is a narrative happening, but it's pretty vague and esoteric and not really as important as how the movie makes you feel and what the movie is ultimately trying to say or how you interpret what that is. The film opens with an image of the destruction of the Tower of Babel and a quote from Leviticus that clarifies just how petty and cruel... A God can be if he feels you have insulted or maligned or defied him and between this and the film's title we come to understand that the world which we descend into is one where if there is a God that created this he must be one of the two definitions of mad either impossibly angry or impossibly insane this is a world which God hates and he is inflicting every kind of cruelty imaginable upon its populace and by the end of the film we we do find some small glimmers of hope if you wish to see it or look for it one character is possibly trying with an alchemist's help to distill out some small fragment of people into a way to create a new maybe better universe or perhaps to understand why life continues to destroy itself in whatever universe it exists in or perhaps to understand the nature of God. And regardless, this film ends with a literal wake-up call and a reminder that forces that wish to annihilate it all are always willing and ready to attempt to do so again. So to say that this movie is humorless or hopeless is to have missed some of it, I think, but certainly the moments are so sparse. Humor, hope, they're not present a lot. You, You... You have to have a certain type of humor or a certain type of perspective to not catch them. Uh, But I also think you have to have a certain type of humor or a certain type of perspective to catch them. Um, The movie is certainly pervasively dark and horrifying and grim and ugly and relentless and utterly captivating i can't wait to watch this movie over and over and over again to catch the little details and to piece together more of the message uh Tippett himself has said that with such an undertaking consistent logic and narrative was impossible uh he was working more with themes so i don't hold it to to the standard of needing to have those it's a tone piece it's an emotional and visceral ride it's about the experience it's not a story Uh, to get bogged down in. And we're going to be debating its meaning for, I think, decades to come. But one thing is certain. It is a must-see film for those who can stomach it. It's a work of art, a monumental achievement, and something that we see far too rarely these days. It's a fully realized vision of an auteur and a certified genius whose unfiltered brain was able to fulfill its purpose and allow us to see what the medium of film is capable of when wielded, by a master. Please go check out Mad God. And up next, what's again on Shutter? Shutter killing me this year. I'm just, I'm going crazy with them. Hell House LLC from 2015. Uh boy, did this movie come across my recommended lists a lot this year. Um look, I I'm not a fan of found footage movies. I'm just going to get that out of the way first. As that particular predilection, or lack thereof in my case, undoubtedly colors any review or opinion I'm going to give on movies that are filmed in that style. I'm pretty sure I've said that before. I'm going to have to say it again here. I've seen some exceptions. The original Wreck, for instance, I thought was intense and relentless enough to get a pass. I enjoy some of the VHS series. Um, And actually the original Cloverfield, of all things, was batshit insane on its release. I saw it in theaters. Though its flaws do become more glaring with every viewing. um, Let's see. The Taking of Deborah Logan was another recent film I saw for which, for the most part, it pulled it off. Um, And back in the day, I saw uh, The Blair Witch Project in theaters. uh, In a time when such films and the brilliant media marketing for them could genuinely make you think there's a slight possibility that it might be real. But you know fast forward to today and thankfully the late aughts and early teens glut of found footage movies is dying down a bit uh that was a period in which everyone who wanted to save a bit on budget hired no-name actors to improv their way through a process process that involved no lights questionable sound minimal special effects and most of the work done in post to make a movie that didn't drag too much but could still make people occasionally jump in their seats when they weren't busy being queasy from the relentlessly shaky camera work so my other gripe major my other major gripe with the style is the logical leaps required to believe that cameras would not only catch everything that we see but that they specifically would not catch things that we might want to in order to maintain this tightrope of believability is is a gargantuan task much like really good acting for example how how do you make as an actor how do you make the audience believe something is genuine fresh unscripted i mean only really the best actors can make us believe that they are truly in the moment and films are no different it's like the concept of the uncanny valley with digital effects when something is so close to being real but it's not real our minds are more likely to reject it than if something is much less real. We, For example, we, we accept a hand-drawn cartoon more than we accept the dead-eyed children of Polar Express, for example, because our brains are wired to tell when something is so close to being human but is really not. And there's actually, I think there's a horror movie or maybe just like a cheap creepypasta to be made about why our brains would need to evolve to be alarmed when something looks just barely not human. But uh, I digress. Uh, Found footage films, by nature, have a big, uncanny valley problem. I'm sad to say that as good as Hell House LLC is in its best moments, it does have a serious, uncanny valley problem. It gets so close to being a good, real-feeling film that it doesn't. It's about a group of kids who try to set up a haunted house at an abandoned old hotel in a rural town in Abaddon, New York. Get it? Abaddon? Huh? Get it? No? Uh, Don't worry. The movie will make sure you get it. And of course, the hotel turns out to actually be haunted and have a really creepy history. And it makes this abundantly clear fairly early on and in ways that, of course, of course, we explicitly see on camera. And there's even a scene where the characters all look at footage of something that is ridiculously inexplicable and obviously paranormal that one of them has experienced. And they chalk that up to that member playing a prank on all of them. Uh, Another scene where they capture some crazy shit on film, the place is obviously haunted, they never discuss it. And it's incredibly hard to fathom how anything could continue after such occurrences. But we're told the head haunter and obsessive guy in charge character just wills everyone to continue like nothing happened. Oh, guys, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Let's just keep doing this haunted house and living in this creepy old hotel. I'm sure that these wildly insane, inexplicable, paranormal things which would get us millions of dollars for this footage from the History Channel. Uh, I'm sure it's all bunk. Let's just keep doing this haunted house thing. Um, But, look, unbelievable character actions aside, the bigger problem lies with the nature of the footage overall. The first part of the film does a good job setting it up documentary style. And as the various points of view and interviewees and found footage unfolds, It makes sense in a narrative sense, as it is edited like a documentary would be. Oh, these kids, you know, some people died at this haunted house. Something bad happened. Let's interview some people. Let's show some footage. Let's, oh, hey, we found some footage from the kids that actually did this event. Let's take a look at that. Great. It all makes sense. But at a certain point, this structure falls apart. And by the end, we're seeing footage that there's no way we could be seeing. With a typical noise filters, and edits just to make sure we don't see too much. The idea of it being a documentary just goes out the window once it straight up becomes a crime scene and murder footage. And the film just it ends weekly with a couple of obvious twists and easy-to-read jump scares and us watching footage that if anyone else saw in the world besides us, it would be a major news story. So that being said, I often see this movie being positioned as one of the best films on Shudder. It's, like I said, it's a common recommendation on horror sites. It's something people often put up there as being a wildly scary movie. And I'm willing to admit, I may be jaded or prejudiced against this film due to my distaste for the style, although I could make a damn good argument about its many flaws. Um, That being said... Hell House LLC does do a lot right if you like the kind of scares it provides. Like the old chestnut where a character looks in a room, sees nothing, looks again, something there, oh, he looks back and it's gone. Followed by five minutes of running around, oh god, oh god, oh god. Or uh, uh, the one where a shape appears briefly in the background where no shape should be. What's Who's that there? There's, there's someone behind you! Uh, or if people screaming a lot. Well, the camera shakes all over the place. If that freaks you out, oh, man, this film will utterly terrify you. Uh, Look, another movie that has a similar setup is Gone Jim Haunted Asylum, which I watched last year, I think. Um, I think it succeeds more in this style by being more consistent. It explains more how we got the footage. Uh, It also goes way harder and crazier in its final moments. I would say if you want this kind of film, check that out instead. Um, Like, look, like I said, I can see some scenes in Hell House LLC being quite scary, but it's not it's not by any stretch a bad movie, a horrible movie per se. It's just it's far from perfect. It has some big glaring flaws. But look, I do get why people enjoy it and hold it up as a good Halloween movie because the atmosphere of a cheesy haunted house full of crappy props, open autumn New York fields misty, rainy fall weather, it's certainly helpful in getting in the October mood. So I see from that perspective why, compared to something like Gonjam Haunted Asylum, you'd watch it for the feel. And I'm sure if I wasn't such a grouch about found footage movies, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Look, it's, it's fine, it's fine, I guess. It's just not my cup of tea. And unfortunately, it's far enough across the uncanny valley that all my alarm bells were ringing during the runtime, and not in a good way. For me, it was close, but no cigar. Up next, I watched City of the Dead. I went way back to 1960. You can find this movie a few places, but of course, it's on Shudder as well. Shudder, usually I'm all over the place. This year, Shudder's just got so much good stuff. Uh, So, a little trivia time. Back in... 1960 a black and white film was released in which a stunning blonde woman known at the time as being the most photogenic actress in the world drives a car to a creepy hotel and checks in only to be suddenly and brutally killed halfway through the movie shocking the audience who thought she was the main character do you have a guess what movie this is Because if you guessed Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, you'd be right. But if you guessed City of the Dead, a little British film which came out the same year, you'd also be right. Coincidence? Uh, City of the Dead, which was known as Horror Hotel here in America, which inspired the title of the Misfits song. uh, It's, it's, as I said, a British horror film that takes place in America, meaning you have a, a whole cast Of well enunciating thespians trying their luck at an American accent to varying degrees of success. And chief among them is a young Christopher Lee, who here overacts and chews scenery as a sinister professor of witchcraft history. And I didn't know that was a course in college, or I would have changed my major. And he sends one of his pretty young students off to a creepy little New England town to be a virgin sacrifice for the resurrected ghost of a witch who was burned 300 years before or something like that Ugh, it's convoluted um and this virgin is to be sacrificed on candle mass eve which um from what i recall and i'm gonna get a little nerdy here isn't one of the witches' sabbats that would be uh Valpurgisnacht and Sawin, or mayday and halloween if you will but uh <laughs> Why Why am I nitpicking this ridiculous movie? Look, to be totally honest, the plot is ridiculous, illogical farce. The acting varies from overdone to completely terrible. And the movie itself has been a fair subject of riff tracks, although I'm surprised Mystery Science Theater didn't do it years ago while that was still a thing. This is a mess. It throws back to some of the most howlingly bad examples of 1950s schlock horror. But what it also does is spectacularly atmospheric scenes with deep, sinewy, velvety, Val like shadows, um, a truly intense amount of mist and fog, and just great shots and reveals and even a spectacularly well-done hard cut or two, one of which made me laugh out loud and applaud Uh, having just seen another such cut in Barbarian, of all things. It was nice to see one just as sharp from such an old movie. Right in the middle of an intense scene, boom! You're somewhere completely different. Great stuff. So as much as I was getting a headache from rolling my eyes at the sheer obtuse obliviousness of every single character, and I do mean every single character. There's not a smart one in the bunch. They all do things that are completely ridiculous, illogical, foolish, and scream at the screen worthy. Look, I have to admit, I really enjoyed City of the Dead because it felt like a wonderful throwback to the kind of over-the-top production values that gave us some of the best examples of hammer horror visuals and atmosphere. The film is saved in many ways by mist and shadows and darkness, which that, that feeling even overpowers some of the incongruous jazz soundtrack and the grating American accents. And it's also noteworthy for pushing some serious boundaries at the time with its dark and sacrilegious subject matter, some racy scenes, its violence, and even its surprisingly gritty climax. Now, funnily enough, for my theme this year of folk horror, this actually could almost be a match even for that subgenre. You have oblivious city folk, being taken advantage of by witchcraft practicing village folk and a feeling of history coming back to prey on the present. But the problem is there's not really a lot of thematic consistency beyond that. And the lack of feeling for the countryside itself takes away from this argument. So I'm I'm not going to count it. So City of the Dead was written by George Bax from a story by Milton Subotsky, who would go on to form amicus pictures hammer horrors main competition and this film is actually considered to be the very first amicus film so among the cast is of course lee who was just at the beginning of his career and shows what would become to be his signature effete menace but was obviously still working on how to actually act and also involved was uh dennis lotus who was a popular musical entertainer of the time and doesn't really seem to understand the tone of the film you had patricia jessel as the witch who gives off some serious Morticia Adams meets Lady Macbeth vibes in the best role of the film. She's great. Uh, You had Valentine Dial, who had the voice of Darth Vader only in real life. And you can also, actually, you might know him better as the creepy caretaker of Hill House in The Haunting. Uh, There's no-name actor Tom Naylor as the uh, pretty young girl's fiancé who never met a line he couldn't woodenly butcher or overact. You had uh, Beta St. John as the one character that doesn't entirely act like a complete moron and who is actually some of a serviceable performer. And then you have Venetia Stevenson as our hapless pretty blonde. Uh, she was an actress model at the time who is certainly photogenic enough, but was once quoted as saying that she hated acting. And from what we see in this film, it's clear that acting hated her too. Um, I, I should be more respectful. She actually passed away a couple of weeks ago, so rest in peace. She is survived by, among others, her daughter Erin Everly, daughter of Don from the Everly Brothers, who is, of course, the sweet child oh mine that Axel Rose wrote about back when the two of them were dating. Oh, <laughs> trivia, yes. But uh, all of this is to say that, that look, Lee is the only. Christopher Lee is the only cast member that made it out of this film, as you probably guessed. And you can see why. He's the only one with any real star power. His few scenes are breaths of fresh air, even if he does have a hard time pushing out this pulped up tripe that they have him spouting. Um, Look, I feel like I'm being harsh on City of the Dead, but I actually did enjoy it in a goofy, fun way, as I said, because it is endearingly stupid. And it moves quickly enough, and it has enough shockingly well-done moments to keep me entertained. There is a number of shots and scenes that have stuck with me, and I look forward to throwing this on in the background on a spooky October night. It's a perfect mood piece for this time of year, and it doesn't require a lot of investment. So check out City of the Dead, like Hell House LLC, if you want some spooky-ooky October goodness. Just with either of them, don't expect a great movie. You had... The 13th movie of this year. Ooh, lucky. Number 13. Lucky. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, It was Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch. Also, you guessed it on Shudder from 1968. Uh, Look. Okay, let's let let me start it this way. Uh, I love me some Japanese genre cinema. I love samurai films. I love anime, kaiju films, J-horror, naturally. And I, I love a good, pensive Japanese drama. It's also a solid go-to on occasion. So when I saw a 1960s horror film from horror legend Kazuo Umetsu, whose uh, horror theater I have on DVD here somewhere, uh, it was distributed by Dainipon Nippon Satsu Kabushiki Kaisha, also known more commonly as Dai Studios, one of the big six production houses in post-war Japan. It's the studio that introduced the Western world to Akira Kurosawa by floating Rashomon at the Venice Film Festival. How can I say no to this horror film? Uh, Plus, there's that title. Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch. I envision some wacky yokai makeup, monster battles, and wildly gushing blood. Some awesome, profoundly Japanese monologuing and some uh, special effects that were both charming and horribly, horribly dated. Which, when done right, that's all my jam. Give it to me. And guess what? I watched this movie, and I actually got most of those things from Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch. Uh, the one of those features that I didn't get was the gushing blood, and I'm sad to say this movie's nearly bloodless. Uh, in addition, while I did indeed get all of my wishes... What I didn't account for was that this film would actually have less in common with, say, Jigoku, Blind Beast, or Kuroneko, and more in common with Goosebumps and Scooby-Doo. It's far more of a children's film. And while I can't speak for the kids of today, because I'm a salty old bastard, with the exception of a couple of scares in a couple of scenes of unexplained supernatural violence, This movie is about as tame as the never-ending story. A movie I dare you to show any child of any generation and not expect tears and lifelong trauma. Snake Girl on the Silver-Haired Witch is about a young girl who is retrieved from her very pleasant orphanage by her very pleasant birth father and is reunited with her not all there but still quite pleasant mother and their huge, beautiful, quite pleasant house. And she finds that her new, new life is also quite pleasant, until her father, who studies snake venom, is called off to Africa to, I don't know, complete his research on snake venom or something. Uh, This movie has a lot of these just-take-our-word-for-it moments, and you can ride with them, or you can fight them, but you'll just have a better time if you just shrug and go with it. It's kids' logic, okay? Adults do things. Okay, I go with it. So once daddy's gone, our young heroine finds out that she has a creepy, not so pleasant sister living in the attic who has this weird mask like face, uh, snake scales on her back and a penchant for turning into a monster and attacking our protagonist. Or does she? Is it a dream? I don't know. And you know what? You never fucking find out. At one point, evil snake sister bites our main girl's neck and then later, main girl just wakes up and is fine, all cool, and I still don't know what happened. And this is all before the fucking white-haired witch shows up to mess with our young lady's life, too. Look, by this point, her shitty snake sister has convinced her mom to make her live in the attic. Her snake sister is a total bitch, by the way, if you haven't figured this out. And once she's living in this musty cobweb filled attic she starts getting visits from a spider loving arm detaching love to choke out little girls witch with you guessed it silver hair so at one point this witch straight up chokes her to unconsciousness but then later she just wakes up on the floor the witch is gone and she's like i'm out of here and she goes climbing out the window and climbs down with some rope who knows where that came from but then the witch suddenly is back and starts cutting the rope and trying to kill her. And then she tries to murder her several more times when she literally had her dead to rights in the first place. I mean, why not just choke her a little longer? Was the little girl's neck that strong? I mean, we find out the witch has no problems with stabbing the shit out of people. Why not stab the little girl too if you want her dead so bad? Mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> I'm attributing. A lot of logical weight to a movie with none, by the way. Did I mention just go with it? So by the end, we get the old man Murphy finish where he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling kids. And you're left wondering, what the hell was all the supernatural stuff that you just saw that could have been, But what? But then we end up with the most Pollyanna kawaii ending possible. And I, I wanted to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Look, I... I had fun with this movie. It's dumb as hell. There's some completely goony dream sequences and special effects that are a hoot and a half. The fake spiders and snakes need to be seen to be believed, and you can never go wrong with a gigantic random vat of acid. But my God, is it dumb as a box of rocks with dunce caps on? And I definitely not something you would ever put on to scare anyone over the age of 10. But... Is it horror? Oh, absolutely. Look, Goosebumps is horror for kids. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Monster Squad, Scooby-Doo, Roald Dolls, the Witches, the works of John Belairs. Look, it's all gateway horror. And this is of that ilk where people of any age can be introduced to the tropes of good horror, which this sometimes is. The idea of a monstrous, power-hungry sister Uh, a strange witch that for some reason has it out for you, hidden family secrets, sinister goings-ons, hidden rooms, even the simple idea that someone is watching you while you sleep and maybe will throw a venomous snake in bed with you. These are all ingredients in a good children's horror gumbo. It isn't a horror gumbo in general. It's a good start down the path to horror fandom for the younger crowd. And while Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch might not be a great horror movie, it might not have been originally meant for kids, it, it, it look, it's still a horror movie, albeit one as an adult, you gotta go into it with a little bit of patience and a good sense of humor about the whole thing but it, it, it can be a good time, just trust me uh, and then finally, this week I watched Saint Maud, uh, which you can find on, not Shutter, Amazon Prime, and I have over here on Blu-ray as well, if you want to stream it though, Amazon is the place to check it out It's from 2019. So looking back over my list of movies so far this year, I have to say a lot of them fall into the category of B or even C level movies. And by that I mean I haven't watched anything I think is a true stinker per se, but many of them have been lacking in some level of quality or level of technical skill. um, like, Like bad scripts, bad acting, questionable directing a dumb central concept, et cetera. Um, I I mean, I've seen seen quite a few that definitely do not fall into the category of a prestige or quality film. Uh, For example, I think of movies like uh, The Ritual, Starry Eyes, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, We Are Still Here, uh, The Lodge, One BR, Tigers Not Afraid, Outcast, Kill List, uh, The Empty Man, or uh, Raw as being recent horror films from the, f- horror films from the last 10 years uh, that I think are underseen, underappreciated uh, on the indie side of films, uh, below the awareness level of uh, bigger movies, more cultural, impactful movies like The Witch, *Baba Duke*, It Follows, Hereditary. Uh, they're, they're all indie horror films that are quality films, actual works of art that elevate the horror and thriller genre and are examples of what the genre is capable of at its best. I would recommend those films to fans of cinema. You know, not just fans of things that go bump in the night or that make blood and viscera fly through the air. There's a time and a place for those kinds of movies, but these movies feel more like film as opposed to you know the the more schlocky side of the genre. Um, and I, I'm happy to say that I found another to add to that list of truly like, well-made serious artistically and emotionally powerful pieces of cinema and i found that in saint maud and saint maud is a psychological horror film which works in three acts to introduce it introduces us to and then lets us watch the steady decline of a fanatically religious woman who works as an in-care uh, in-house care nurse for the dying And she takes on a cancer-stricken ex-dancer and bohemian socialite as a patient and becomes convinced that she has to save this woman's soul. And the brilliance of the movie is in the slow, deliberate way that we are led into her world and given information and insights little by little so that more and more of the reality or possibly super reality that exists in that world is revealed to us. Not to mention the fact that Maud herself is played by the absolutely heartbreaking and captivating Morphid Clark, who showed us here her ability at playing a determined fanatic years before we saw her play Galadriel in the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon. Uh, and actually, she ended up winning the Welsh version of a Best, best Actress BAFTA for her role here. She brings a uh, rawness. A wide-eyed wildness and a violin string tautness to this character. And it makes the mystery of Maud that much more intriguing that she's played with such quiet ferocity. Does Maud really talk to God? If so, why does God speak to her in her own voice, pitch shifted down and spoken in Welsh? Um, is her ward, is, is, is the dancer lady, is she really possessed by Satan? Uh, what happened at the beginning of the movie that left her with a dead patient and her arms covered in blood up to her elbows. Why does she see whirlpools everywhere? And is she really experiencing the ecstasies of God when she has her uh, seizures and fits? Or is she actually epileptic? Um, Does her obsession with William Blake have to do with his radical iconoclastic views on traditional religion and deeply held spiritual personal beliefs? Or is she just captivated by his pretty paintings of angels and the Red Dragon. Uh, is she actually an agent of a higher power? Or just a very lonely broken girl who has given into fantasy and delusion? Is Maud even her real name? So Saint Maud does end up answering almost all of these questions. And at least it does if you interpret it the way that the writer-director, uh, wildly talented first-time auteur Rose Glass, has said in interviews that she intended it to be taken the deservedly famous final moment and shot of the film makes it fairly clear, I think, what is actually happening, although I've still seen people, usually religious types, straight up say that they don't care how the creator intended it, how she's explicitly said that it is. They still found other meanings to the film and its climax. And honestly, as a work of art that has been released from the hands of the artist that made it, it is, I suppose fair game for interpretation but it also i think speaks highly of the film that it can be taken in multiple different ways as art i think is meant to create an emotional connection and reaction in its viewers and i, I certainly think saint Maud is extremely capable of doing just that contemplating the film after the credits roll and the gut-wrenching music kicks in you should be left fully shook by this movie and if you're not shook then I'm not really sure what could shake you, because it's not for everyone, of course. One one of the things we've talked about in this episode: some of these movies aren't for me. Uh, if you're a big fan of jump scare gore fests and found yourself bored by any of those movies I listed earlier, uh, you know, The Ritual or uh, uh, Kill List or any of those, or say, for instance, if you're one of the poor attention span deprived souls i've seen on reddit and twitter saying that the new hellraiser is too slow and light on the blood look then saint Maud is not for you this movie is a slow screw tightener where you need the full runtime for the water to boil as it were and every scene reveals a new clue or character facet or mystery to be solved or haunting moment to be interpreted or even just some skin-crawlingly awkward interaction that defines the specific world we're experiencing And if those are the kinds of films that you like, then you don't like, you don't want to wait for the end. Then you don't deserve the payoff here. The true horror of this film and the lasting impression it could leave on you. If you let it, it's truly a wonderful thing when a movie can get under my skin, the way that St. Maud did. And as a result, I highly recommend it to anyone who loves a truly well-made gut punch of a horror film that takes a bit of investment to truly experience it. Um, and I'm going to go on a bit of a a tangent here, but bear with me. There's a theme in horror films that I hadn't really contemplated much until I saw St. Maud, and that's the concept of loneliness. How many horror films are really, at the end of the day, about loneliness and its effects? How often is the idea of isolation and the fear and madness that comes from that one of the necessary ingredients in a genre piece. Uh, Dracula needed Mina Harker so much that he died again for her. Same with Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, The Mummy, King Kong. What about the Wolfman, forever outcast due to his lycanthropic condition? Frankenstein's monster longed for another like him, and when the bride rejected him, he burned them both to death. But even in in the first movie, all he wanted was that connection with another living soul because he was lonely even if he didn't know how to accomplish it and even if he didn't know little girls can't swim oops so not to mention the book version of the monster he was all alone what about some of the great horror movies The Shining Rosemary's Baby Night of the Living Dead uh, The Thing, Psycho how many of them are about being cut off from Other people how many of them have lonely broken people at their core that evoke empathy for an outcast or fear at what such a state can create look I know it's a cliche but it's often said that true hell lies within that the mind can create worse torments than the world can inflict and if so this might explain why it's so prevalent to find forsaken characters in horror movies. Society can create its own evils, but personal turmoil and struggle in some ways is far more terrifying due to its inescapability. We're alone with ourselves. What monsters can be created without any help from others? Now, while this this train of thought started with St. Maude, it circled back around to this year's Horrorpalooza theme of folk horror. So many times in that subgenre. The isolated folk become monstrous to the interlopers that find them due to their isolation, bringing back traditions from the past that challenge the societal norms of the present, uh, whether it be due to the society attempting to bury its past sins or trying to evolve past traditions and actions that in a historical context seem savage or barbaric. Uh, Clashing morals due to the different belief systems brought about by exposure or lack thereof to others or those who could be defined as other, is a fundamental tenet of these themes. And isolation is often depicted as creating quote-unquote less moral or amoral cultures. Uh, Take Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Eden Lake. The isolated rural families are tight-knit. They have their own moral code. But in their isolation and rejection of any outside interaction, they skew further and further from what would be acceptable in a wider society. Uh, in real life killer, Ed Gein, the man that Leatherface was based on, and also uh, Psycho's Norman Bates, Silence of the Lambs' Buffalo Bill, he was an extremely lonely and isolated guy. He live, lived alone on his vast farm after allegedly killing his brother and then walling off his revered mother's room with her body inside once she passed away. And his loneliness turned to what we would consider madness, but that was, to him, just his reality. And, and this skewed reality, the ability for humans to live in their own worlds that are vastly different from each others, and the shared reality that is created when you are subjected to multiple points of view, which may not be present for those who don't have the advantage of exposure to those contextualizing viewpoints, that's such fertile ground for exploration via the medium of horror film. It's safe to explore the darker possibilities of the human mind from the comfort of the theater or the sofa. We've all experienced loneliness in our lives, some more than others. And for some people, it's more devastating and crushing than to others as well. I I don't know about you all, but I've, I've met people who cannot stand to be alone they always have to be out and about around others talking interacting being loud laughing or even just in the presence of other people now what would those people do if they were forced to be alone what are they trying to avoid by filling their life their and their time and their senses with the experience of other people what what if they would have been born on an isolated farm with a domineering fanatic mother an abusive father who drove off other people and Nothing to do all day but slaughter the hogs and cut down trees with a family chainsaw. What if they never learned social skills but they still had that pervasive, gnawing need for connection, companionship, and interaction? Well, shit, there you have the basis for hundreds of horror films. And I guess that's what this little rant is about, really. I I know it's not an original thought, but it's it's one that St. Maude inspired in me, seeing as it is at its core a movie about loneliness and connection but it's making me realize how much of horror cinema is dominated by that theme crystallizing that concept more than any film i've seen recently and it made me understand better how much such a basic human condition is fundamental and integral to this genre and why because it is something we can all relate to to varying degrees It is something that is close and can feel real to all of us. And the most horrific things are the things we can believe that are tangible, the things that are the most real to us in our own little worlds. And the need for these movies is the need to understand those aspects of ourselves, to experience and process them, to gain catharsis, to blow off that steam, to take the roller coaster ride and feel like we're about to die, but know we will be safe. But just to tickle that rim of the abyss and come back whole. Because at the end of the day, we are all alone, trapped in our minds. No one will ever truly know exactly who we are or what we're thinking. We are different people to everyone we meet. No one has the exact same perception of us, not even ourselves, our perception of ourselves is different than someone else's and always will be. But at least if we watch movies like St. Maud, it helps us feel like someone out there also understands that. They comprehend that condition. And that just might make us feel less alone in the end. So uh, sorry for all the, the uh, deep thoughts there. In the middle of Horror Palooza, this is uh, supposed to be a fun show, but Saint Maud got me thinking. It got me contemplating. It got me. Got me uh, uh, thinking those those deep, heavy, hairy thoughts. But uh, don't worry, that is it for this week. Thank you guys for sticking with me to the end of this show. We will be back next week with seven more horror films on this year's horror marathon. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what I get up to. I have no idea. It's I, I pick it day to day. I just hope that I get enough to satisfy all of my rules. Once again, I am Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. your Uncle Frank, Sir Ian Dangerous on Instagram. Skinless Wonder on Twitter. Hit me up. Tell me what you think about all of that. Let's not be lonely. Let's communicate with each other. Let's talk and see what we think about all these movies from this week and, of course, every week here on Palooza. Once again, like, share, and subscribe. You know the deal. Check out tikicreeps.com, 414bag on Instagram, my musical friends. And everybody else, thank you for joining me on this year's show. We will, of course, be back with more next week on Horror.